Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to this episode of an Investment Friday on the Expansive CEO podcast. It is Thursday, October 26th. Timestamp is 5.06 p.m. I am here with who other than Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. What's up, man? Good afternoon, Hannah. What's going on this week? How are you? First, how are you doing? Doing well. Doing well. We had uh, we had a little bit of a, some inclement weather, so that was good. Always uh, gets you appreciative appreciative of sunny sunny times in Arizona, so that's always good. But fortunately, um, bond market has has definitely uh, I don't know fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what side of this trade you're on, but. Bond yields have been very volatile. They've gone up or down 10 to 15 basis points, which is 0.15 of 1% on a daily basis, which is incredibly volatile for the bond market. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we're sitting with, you know, we're sitting knocking on the door of of basically a correction, which is 10% in the broader market indices of a pullback. From their highs in late July, so the S and P 500 right now, as it sits, is off about 9.9 percent. And intraday, it did crack that 10 percent, but it did not. It did not uh, close there, so it's not. Yeah, you know, people don't count it as as heavily. So, again, right. we've had we've had we've talked a lot about these top eight stocks, these eight mega cap technology related or tech companies that have been driving the market basically on it on their own for year for this year for 2023 and we started to get some good earnings and yet they're falling quite a bit in price why when you're priced for perfection you have to deliver perfect earnings and earnings growth well if you don't then your price takes a hit. And so, you know, we've had Amazon, we've had uh, Meta, we've had uh, uh, Tesla, all of those come in with, with less than less than perfect earnings reports. And those have sold off in a in kind of a big way. And that's what's pulling down the the rest of the market. All right. Interesting. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was wondering what was, happening there right so that totally makes sense that when those stocks are essentially overbought right we've been talking about uh price to earnings ratios pe ratios that the pe ratios on those stocks are quite high right now meaning they're you know somewhat overvalued based on their actual economic activity um like you're saying if they're not if if the consumers or the investors aren't seeing, oh, like they're definitely hitting these markers that we thought they would hit in order to be worth as much money as we think they're worth right now. That's the pullback. Exactly. And it's, it's one of these things that I don't want everybody to think that these are, I think these are bad companies. They're not, they're fantastic. In fact, they're arguably the best companies that have ever existed. 
but the stock price can get divorced a little bit from their underlying fundamentals and their growth pattern. And so while the company underlying companies are really, really good, sometimes those prices can get bid up too much, too fast for their growth prospects. So, so Brad, we talked about this several months ago. Um, and, and we've revisited it a couple of times over, um, the last several months as well, how, you know, you had been talking about again, these, you know, top eight stocks, it's been, you know, seven to eight this whole year. Right. And that there could be the possibility that those would pull back because the rest of, if we talk about the S and P 500, you know, the, the largest 500 companies in the United States, right. So the other 492, 493 had not been keeping up with that same growth rate at all, right? They were up like, what, 1% to 2% when those top eight were up 17 to 18%, something like Correct. that. Yep, um, right. So you you had said, I mean, we could go back, I could probably find the clip even, that it's not necessarily that those top eight have to like fall hard in order to come back to equilibrium with the other 492, but that we could see them come down while we wait for the other 492 to catch up. Is that what we're seeing now? That is what we're seeing now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, earlier in the year, um, they definitely became overbought. Um, and, and it becomes a problem. It's the law of large numbers, if you will. You know, when you're a trillion dollar company, to grow 10%, okay, you're adding a large, large company with for that growth. Like, so you're adding a whole nother multinational to your company's base for that growth. Whereas when you're a $10 billion company to grow another billion, you know, you're adding a small cap, arguably somewhere in the mid cap range a small company. So it's not as hard to do, but when you're talking a trillion dollar company, that, that large, large numbers, it just, the probability of it continuing to grow is just not very high. It, it, you know um, it's, it's one of the reasons why in all investing and in all uh, business schools, they go over the, the S curve, which is your, your function where, you know, a company starts out small, um, doesn't really grow all that fast until it gets some adoption for its its product or service. Then it accelerates up this very steep growth curve. And at the top of that curve, it starts to level out as the market value gets to be much higher, as the revenues start to stabilize. Um, you just can't continue to grow exponentially forever. You just can't. It's just it, it it doesn't happen. So that S curve, which a lot of people will will have seen in their lifetime, is very very indicative of the life cycle of a company. And those top eight companies are the biggest companies in the world. They're the biggest companies in the world. So when they get bought up, you know, they can get they can get priced out of where everybody owns them. Everybody owns them. Who? Who is the marginal buyer for Apple now? I don't know one person that doesn't own Apple already. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So when everybody already owns a stock, even though it's a great company, who is the marginal buyer that is going to propel that stock up? I mean, you're going down to organic growth. It's going to all be related to their organic earnings growth, which, as I said, unless they buy in a bunch of shares and grow those earnings, probably isn't is, is going to be a tough a tough call. Um, not to say it can't happen because it can, but it's just a, a lower probability event as opposed to some others. So you mentioned the bond market instead, right? And if you're on the wrong side of the trade. Um, so we, I think we talked about this a little bit last week as well. When bond yields go up, which they've been doing, the prices of current bonds that are currently held, those go down. So if you have, um, if you're looking at your own portfolio and you have um, like bonds packaged up in a mutual fund or bonds packaged into an ETF, a lot of times that investment that you have is probably going to be down this week as the interest rates and the yields continue to rise. Those, a lot of those bond mutual funds and ETFs are going to be depressed, right? The the prices are going to be falling. So what's the what's the upside? What's the what's the plan, Brad? If that's if that's what people question. are experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we've seen now is is short-term yields, which as interest rates have gone up, those short-term yields have really gone up a lot over the past 18 to 20 months. Okay, and there, yeah, too. just to say like short-term yields also show up in, that's where we see like the high yield savings accounts and things like that, right? Like yep. when the short-term yields are high, that does tend to translate into things that like consumers actually understand, yeah, so, like CDs yep, from a bank. CDs, money market funds, high yield savings accounts, unfortunately, credit cards, um, home equity lines of credit, any of those floating rate um, liabilities that we as households may have, those also go up, okay? Mm. Um, Now, when long-term yields start to come up, what that does is it constrains a lot of other types of financing. So mortgage rates go up. Um, Business loans, their expense goes up, their, their cost of funds goes up. Uh, real estate, that those cost of funds start to go up. And so one of the things that people have con- been confused by is why is the U.S. real GDP growth so strong relative to the, the interest rate increases? Why has it not slowed down? And part of the reason is because we've had an inverted yield curve where our long-term yields have remained <laughs> up until the last couple of months pretty low they haven't really moved a lot compared to the short term the short term rates but now it's almost the opposite now we have long term yields starting to adjust upwards and we have short term yields remaining the same or coming down a little bit and so that steepening of the yield curve as those long term yields come up will start to bite into economic activity from the real estate, the commercial, the industrial, um, and the home 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 buyers. Um, 
home buyers are also in a, a bit of a different pickle because a lot of new homes, um, the the builders are actually buying down the mortgage rates, which is why you'll see really good new home sales, but existing home sales are almost non-existent. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I've I've got um, you know friends and connections in real estate. A lot of people do. Um, we've been having conversations around, you know, what's going on in the real estate markets here in Cincinnati, you know, out in Arizona, all across the country, basically, um, and what's happening there between new build and existing home sales and all of that. And that's been really interesting to follow as well. You know, along with more, I mean, mortgages are just they're they are much more expensive when your rate is six or seven percent, you know, for the same price house. Yeah, and and not only that, it's probably seven to eight percent. Um, you know, those those rates have gone up to those 30-year mortgage rates have gone up to around eight percent. So, you know, if you're if you're looking to buy, you know you can get a, a pretty decent five or 6% rate from a home builder that's building a new home. They're buying down that rate for you. Um, you know, that's, that's a good option too, but they're also picking it up in the price. So it's an, it's an interesting dynamic right now where I think builders can, can play with a few different levers for profitability. Um, and, and that's where, where, that's where, new home buyers are getting the traction. That's where they're going mm -hmm. as opposed to existing homes where you have to qualify for a mortgage. The mortgage is going to be 8% unless you decide to really allocate a lot of money to buying down that rate. So again, it's interesting uh, for that, that perspective, but uh, the higher yields generally are going to bite on economic growth here towards the end of the year, early 2024. All right. Well, we will pay attention to that. And it it's not a perfect segue, um, but I wanted to go to a question that we received um, from Bob, our favorite phantom third third person here uh, in our in the podcast. Because well, he always has good comments or good questions. So great questions. And this week, uh, when we were talking, he mentioned that he heard Janet Yellen on the radio and Janet Yellen is the um, secretary of the treasury. Mm -hmm. And so she holds some pretty big sway when it comes to talking about what's happening in the economy. She said um, in talking to Sky News that the United States can certainly afford to support wars on two fronts as the conflict between Israel and Hamas threatens stability in the Middle East and the U.S. continues to back Ukraine's fight against Russia. And so Bob's question first was, how how on earth would we fund, be certainly able to fund two wars? And, you know, like, where where is that coming from, where that would be possible? Um, from an economic standpoint, and then the follow-on question of that, of what does that do to the economy and what should we be looking out for? Um, so I thought it was a really prescient question, right? And something that a lot of people probably are like, 
if Bob's asking it, there are probably a lot of other people who are like, what? Yeah. What do you mean we could fund two wars? And what does that what does that look like for the economy? So tell me, what do you think? Where does that? Yeah, come it's from? good. It's a great question. Um, I also heard that 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 comment uh, a little while ago. She mentioned it. And generally what happens is, first of all, the U.S. plans for a, a two to three war uh, theater. Okay, theaters of war. Okay, they in in the in the De Department of Defense long term planning. That is one of their objectives is to be able to maintain two separate theaters of war at the same time and be able to fund it, supply it, and fight it. Um, just baseline at any given time. Like we could just we could time. just go start two wars anytime, and we probably wouldn't start them, but. Join. Yes, <laughs> respond to possibly aggressive action. Okay. Um, and so what she's saying is not out of character or out of context with what the what the plans are in any ways. Now, economically speaking, wars generate economic activity. Okay. They are outside of the disastrous human cost, which I I, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna step on my foot and, and minimize it a little bit because, and, and I'm not trying to, it's just, again, we're talking about the economics of it and the financial market aspects. So, but the, the disastrous humanitarian cost is something that um, is important to consider. But if you look at it from an economic standpoint, uh, what happens is the government and whichever government this is, they start to, to finance that war effort through deficit spending. So they get out the checkbook. Um, Secretary Yellen would just start writing checks and start issuing bonds to fund those additional expenditures. So our the the national debt would increase. In fact, that's typically what happens as you go through large conflicts: is our debt grows significantly during those times. And then after those periods, when those conflicts are resolved, then it it starts the growth in that debt starts to drop off. Now, economic theory says that you once you've once you've reestablished your peacetime economy, you should start to pay down some of those debts so that you have a little bit of room on your credit card, if you will just in case you need to start spending again for you know an economic downturn right fiscal stimulus that that's part of that fiscal deficit that it, that is financed by our national debt so during war you know that you're going to run up the credit card if you will a little bit um by buying new weapons training the the the, the soldiers and sailors and air people by buying airplanes and weapons and and ammunition for those for those tools um so you know you're going to spend a little bit more but the thought is and the theory is is that once you've once that war has ended and you've fun you've transitioned back to a peacetime economy you should be able to pare down that debt so that the next time you have a recession or another conflict comes up, you have the capacity to borrow so that you can again finance some of those 
extra expenditures. But when we think back to the last few times when we've printed a lot of money, right? So thinking about COVID, maybe even thinking back to um, you know previous conflicts and wars that we've been in when interest rates were very, very low, mm-hmm. near 0%, the argument was, yeah, we could borrow as much as the government, you know, not we the not we the American people, but the government could borrow at 0.1% interest as much as it wanted to because the debt service on that would be very easy to manage. Correct. But now we've got higher interest rates, right? Yep. So how does that equation then change? Because yeah, afterwards, if we've, you know, been through multi multiple fronts of conflict and interest rates are instead instead of at 0.1% or 0.25% they're at 4 5 6% what does that do how do we how do we handle that yeah so there's a couple of different thing the thought processes there is one is um yes the US government has spent an enormous amount of money since 2001 whether it be on conflicts whether whether it be it, whether it was through uh, decreasing tax rates, whether it was through um, pandemic relief, right? Uh, all of those have led to uh, an explosive amount of national debt. Okay, now with the rates coming up, all that leverage, higher rates means a lot of our revenue is going to be used, and that interest just covering that interest. But I also want you to think about it on the flip side. Who owns those bonds? Now, there are some central banks that own, foreign central banks that own those bonds, okay? And there's a lot of them. There are some central banks that own a lot of those, okay? So China, Japan, we pay a lot of interest to them right now, okay? But a a lot of pension funds, insurance companies, banks, um, individual people own uh, the Social Security Trust Fund. They own treasuries. So, you know, as an individual, if I owned a bunch of treasuries, I would collect now a much higher interest rate, but I'm also taxed on that. So it will be interesting to me, and I'm I'm looking at the, the federal revenue, tax revenue, as to see whether it begins to climb uh, due to higher rates, because it should to a certain extent, unless economic activity trails off to such an extent that we actually lower our tax base. I don't see that happening. I do see, again, we just had the third quarter, 4.9% GDP growth, fantastic for the third quarter, higher than anybody expected. but, you know, we are slowing down. We probably are going to continue to slow down, possibly go into a shallow recession here in 24, early 24. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how those tax revenues from 2023 come in and and how that, if it grows, commensurate with that. Probably not. But again, I think it's uh, I think it's important to to recognize there's two sides of that coin, not just the federal government paying, but who also gets paid that interest 
to to understand that there is a lot of taxes that are paid on those on those bonds. Now, can we afford? I, yes, we can. That's the short answer. The United States can afford to do that, but for how long? And how big of a conflict? So, can we afford a, a world war? We would have to, but no, it's probably not the best financial decision. It's not. It's probably not um, an easy financeable thing. Like it would push yields on treasuries up significantly because now you're issuing a lot more debt, and you have to incur. You know. Back in World War II, there was war bonds. Mm -hmm. They would literally come around your neighborhood and sell you war bonds to help finance the war. Well, we're not at that point today. We still have a lot of demand for U.S. Treasury bonds. It's the world standard when it comes to safety. But as we get more debt out there, it becomes more of a possible credit risk from other people's perspective, even though it's still considered the the safest investment in terms of the bonds. So from an so we talked a lot about bonds with that. If we were, you know, so that's what would we would expect to see what we have seen before, right? In times of conflict in the bond markets and how we fund wars or conflicts. What happens to the equity markets? It's a great question. Generally, they sell off pretty fast when a war starts. And and why is that? Like it doesn't change anything except for now there's an event going on. Well, the reason why equities sell off because equities are very long duration assets. We own them for a long time. They're businesses, they're they involve people, they involve products and services. They're a long-term investment. And so any amount of uncertainty in the economy, in the market, in the geopolitical world, equities will sell off almost immediately. Then investors start to assess, okay, who's going to actually do well in this environment and who's going to get hurt? Generally, manufacturers do very well in a wartime economy, okay? Particularly defense manufacturers, air, you know, so aerospace, you get um, a lot of the defense contractors. So there's a, a lot of the companies that would do quite well if if we went to war. Now, if it's a local a local um, conflict that we're helping out, yeah, it'll it'll generate some economic growth, but it's probably not going to be on the margin very very impactful. Um, so yeah. So it, it would certain companies would do quite well. Other companies would not do very well. Uh, my guess is is luxury goods, like luxury good companies wouldn't do all that great. Um, and but yet other other items like again, you know, uh, airplanes, shipbuilding, um, ammun ammunition, gun manufacturers, they do quite well, particularly the ones that have ties to the Department of Defense. And so when we're looking at this, this is I, I what I what I feel like I'm hearing um is, you know, it's I don't want to say part of the cycle, but with equities especially, 
the thing when we were when we were talking before the episode was that 10 year time frame right and i notice a lot of investors now maybe younger investors especially that want to see immediate gains yeah and don't want to necessarily think in terms of 10 years 20 years 30 years right they're like no no i don't i don't want i don't want to know what what i should be expecting in 10 years i want to see continuous growth year after year and so when you know we know when we're when we are as you know financial professionals are trying to um explain that longevity piece you're like yeah we're going to target 8 9% of growth but it's going to be over a long period of time right right that's that's a different um just a different viewpoint i think that not I wonder, I wonder if you feel the same way from your perspective, just if that that's shifting now that people don't are tired of experiencing the black swan events as they're called, you know, like a black swan event, meaning um, like COVID, for example, you know, we had it, it, everything tumbled, you know, so far, like 20, 30, 40%, like really quickly because of the uncertainty in the market. Um, I think back to September 11th right? Like just black swan event, right? We didn't expect that to happen. And the markets took a huge nosedive, right? At that same time. And I know, so I'm, again, I'm 39. Um, I was graduating high school when September 11th happened. And I, my generation has lived through a lot of these unprecedented, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, unprecedented events, and so people in their, you know, 30s, 40s, sometimes even 50s are like, I'm tired of unprecedented events and seeing the effects that they constantly have on my portfolio because they do, right? It's like that. So there, I think that's part yeah, of it. Yeah, they could be devastating. Right. That's the impetus for that question is like, okay, they just keep happening. How do we, how do we manage to actually grow our investment portfolios if these, you know, Black Swan unprecedented events keep happening where equities sell off so heavily. So I'm going to answer you with two different answers. Okay. How's that? I like One it. One is Crandall Pierce is a company that creates charts uh, based on financial markets, history, um, historical events, different economic indicators. And one of the charts they have is from the beginning of the 1900s through 2000, up until now, uh, September of 2023. And they 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 can go and they have different reasons why someone should, should never invest in equities almost every year. And, and they're usually pretty big reasons. You know, Vietnam War, Korea War, World War One, World War II, September 11th, um, all of these different things, catastrophes have happened. And, 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 and yes, history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And there's always going to be reasons to not invest in equities. And yet, invest equities have been the place to be over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they've they've made they've created a massive amount of wealth for thousands and thousands of families if not more because of because of the ability to track economic growth right it's one of the only ways you can monetize or grow with the US economy is is with equities over a longer period of time now that's not to say you just buy and hold okay and that's one of the things at juncture we are uh, we are very much in favor of not um or of taking proactive action to to maybe offset or mitigate some of those large large drawdowns those large losses like you know covid um you know the the debacle and the great financial crisis of 2000 seven through 2009, you know, different, different things like that, where you have the potential for large drawdowns, which can impair your portfolio, particularly if you're living on it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of things you can do to help manage that downside volatility while still maintaining the ability to grow over a longer period of time with U.S. equities or equities in general. So um, I would say, one, all the time there's reasons not to invest in equities. And two, there are some really great strategies you can use to help manage that downside if that really is something that's bothersome. Mm. All right. Well, I think that covers it really well, actually. Um, And if there are any other follow-up questions or if yeah, if you hear anything else on the news, right? Hear something that you're like, oh, what does this mean? Um, let us know. Like, we want to hear about it. We want to be able to answer your questions. Um, and we certainly have plenty of things to talk about, um, even if we don't get questions. But I I think it's so much more valuable to actually be able to speak to the things that you know, you're know you thinking about as a listener um, and the questions that come up that you that you just want to hear the perspective, um, different perspectives, even right. Like I'm different from you, Brad. <laughs> right. So we've got <laughs> yes. we've got a little like we agree on a lot of stuff, but um, it's certainly you know the CFP side versus the CFA side. You know and the different perspectives that we bring East to the table. coast, west coast. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a western I know. heart, so. <laughs> You're, you're more of a transplant to the East Coast than anything. I, I know. I know. My sunshiny uh, ways are like, why are you here? Um, no, it's it's beautiful. I love Cincinnati. Um, but yeah, so if you do have questions and anything else you want to hear us talk about or, you know, things that are happening in the world that you just have, you know, want to know the economic implications for you potentially, like, I don't know, we want to talk about it, so. Thanks for being here, Brad. I appreciate you as always. Thank you. Appreciate the invite. Yep. And we will talk to you again next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at ExpansiveCEO.com. And tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, 
You can find ways to work with me at expansiveceo.com and at xsquaredwealthplanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, wealthplanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.